Hi, and welcome to the Calm Birth Conversation podcast. This is Karen McClay, and I will be having lots of wonderful conversations with experts and parents around pregnancy, birth, and parenting, with the aim to help you to make informed choices and decisions around your own journey into parenthood. This podcast is brought to you by Calm Birth, Australia's leading childbirth education program. Okay, so hi, Hazel, welcome, and thank you so much for joining me today. Um, would you like to tell everyone just a little bit about yourself and, and, and where you work and what you do? Sure. So my name is Hazel Keedle, and I'm a lecturer of midwifery at the School of Nursing and Midwifery at Western Sydney University. Um, I teach in both the Bachelor of Midwifery and the Graduate Diploma of Midwifery. Um, and I'm also the, I guess, the point of contact for new people who are looking into the course. They, they get my email and, and uh, so I tell them all about the course. And I also, um, as the academic course advisor, I look after the students on the Bachelor of Midwifery. Yeah, beautiful. And one of your passions is vaginal birth after cesarean, isn't it, Hazel? And you've done a lot of research around that. And that's what I'm really keen to have a chat to you about today, um, because it's also one of my passions as well, having been a mother who's experienced a vaginal birth after cesarean. And it's one of those things that we know that many women can actually have a successful vaginal birth after cesarean for their next birth. However, our system and our numbers are not really reflecting that, whether there seems to be more women who are having cesarean sections for various reasons than what they are actually going um, for a, a vaginal birth after cesarean. So having a look at your research, Hazel, a lot of your research is very much about women's experiences of vaginal birth after cesarean, which I think is really powerful. As we were saying a little bit earlier when we were talking before we started recording this was that, you know, that experience of, of women and birth is so much more important than the actual statistics of things um, because that's what women carry on with, with the rest of their life. So what can you just tell us a little bit about your research and what you've been studying and maybe sort of the outcomes that you've found? Sure. So like yourself, I had a VBAC back in 2008 and that made me really um, question, I think, what, what would women's experiences be having a VBAC? Because I had to battle um, and I was a midwife and I'm in a very privileged situation and I thought that you know, maybe women who didn't have that would have a very different experience. So they kind of led me on a path of research. Um, my first research study was actually looking at women's experiences of having VBAC at home. Mm -hmm. So that was the HBAC study published in 2015, I think that was. And that's when I, I interviewed um, 13 women um, after they'd had, had a HBAC um, and really try to find out what was, I guess, what was their experience. And um, I use a thematic analysis, which is qualitative, which means I'm looking at all of their data and then coming up with themes. And that major theme, that overarching theme that came out from that was it's never happening again. So women really had this um, reflective period of their previous cesarean and they were adamant that that wasn't going to happen again. And then they would go on the journey. Interestingly, the majority of women weren't actually going, weren't actually planning on a home birth, first of all, but they would go to the hospital and they would have their, um, you know, their wishes and they would explain those to their healthcare providers that they might not want a CTG or they might not want to be induced or they might not want an IV cannula. Um, and then the hospitals would just be, would have no negotiation. They're like, nope, you have to do it our way or you go to the highway, like it's our way or the highway. And that actually backed women into a corner and made them look at what else is out there. And that's where they would find home birth and that's where they would find a private midwife. And the majority of women, all of the women by one had a private midwife. So um, that then opened up a whole new world. Um, and one of the women I interviewed said that she felt that women birthing in hospital planning a VBAC, they were the brave ones. And I kind of then reflect, reflected on my own experience as well and thought, well, yeah, I was a planned home birth, planned VBAC, but I planned home birth VBAC, but I transferred to hospital. So I had my, my VBAC in the hospital and it was a real challenge. Mm. And so after that was my master's. And so after I published that and I, and I submitted that thesis, I wanted to move straight into a PhD because I want to broaden, I wanted to broaden the net. Um, and I wanted to hear about all women's experiences in Australia planning, um, planning a VBAC. So that's what I did. Now, I actually did a mixed method study. So that means I did both the numbers and the feelings, the qualitative and the quantitative. Um, and I started off with, first of all, looking at all the 
qualitative research that was out there about VBAC or women's experiences of VBAC, and that included my own HVAC paper. And um, most of them were in hospitals, but one of them was also a birthing centre in Scotland that published a, published a study. So I put all that together um, in a, with quantitative, we call that systematic review, but in qualitative, we call that a meta-ethnography. And you use a very um, strict seven-phase process to go through it, so it's method methodological and uh, what I found from that was that women go on this journey from pain, their previous cesarean, to power, their VBAC. But during that journey, there were lots of peaks um, and troughs, mm. some were positive experiences and some were negative experiences. But because all of those studies have been done once the woman had had her VBAC or repeat cesarean, then we had very little, well, there was very little data finding out what's actually going on during that journey. So during that pregnancy, because these were all retrospective interviews. Now, you know, women are looking back and going, well, this happened and this happened all in one interview. And if we think about, um, you know, if we think about women when they're going through pregnancy and the labor and birth, and then that immediate postnatal period, you are going through so much change during that time. And so for, to only ask that, ask, um, do an interview at the end of six weeks after the birth and then expect women to remember what's going on during the pregnancy, it, it, it has a bit of an issue with recall. And I think more so than in many other situations because, you know, then you've got the labor and birth, however that ends up. And then you've got this six weeks of no sleep and breastfeeding and looking after a newborn as well as probably looking after a toddler because you've had a, you know, you were planning a VBAC so you've got a previous birth there. So I, I wanted to focus in on that journey. So the second part of my um, PhD, or the first time that I started doing data collection, um, I actually des designed an app that would go on women's phones so that after every appointment, um, they could come home and they could do a recording on that app. And what I was trying to get there is that moment when you, you know, you go and see a GP or any doctor and you've got a, you've got a whole scribe in your head. And we know women do this for us as well as midwives. We've got a whole list of things that you're going to go through, especially if you're sitting in a waiting room, first of all, you're kind of going over it and over and over it. And then you go in there and it goes completely differently. Um, and you come out and you come home and you go, well, why didn't I say this? Or why didn't I do this? Or why did they say that? And you have this whole reflecting time. Well, that was the moment I wanted to capture I didn't want to be in the appointment because in a way you've got two actors playing in a play at that point. Mm. I wanted to get that reflective moment and I wanted to see how those interactions influence then the woman's decisions to go on um, and plan her VBAC. So that's what I did and that's what they could do on their phone. They could record audio or video recordings. Um, I had 11 women that I followed all the way through. Now, qualitative research is about quality, not quantity. So that's yeah. fine, that number. And I had over 50 recordings that were done by, by these women. Yeah. Some mm. of them did them after every single appointment. Some of them came more towards the end of their pregnancy. Some were there from the very beginning of their pregnancy. So I had a range of recordings. But I did also interview them all postnatally as well so that I could capture the labor and birth and the postnatal period as well. And what I found from that, I did something called narrative analysis where you compare all the stories to each other. And I had these really deep stories of women. And I found that there were four important factors that influenced how a woman felt after her birthing experience, regardless of birth outcome. So in my, in my study, I had about half have um, had a VBAC, one had an instrumental VBAC, and the other half had repeat cesareans. So I had some interesting experiences to compare um, to see really what, you know, what were the impacts. So yeah, these four factors were having control. So that was how in control the woman felt she was in her choices, her wishes and her outcomes. Um, having confidence. So how confident she felt in her ability to have a VBAC. But also, and probably more importantly, is how confident she felt her healthcare provider was in her ability to have a VBAC. Mm. And I often use this uh, analogy that, you know, if you were training for the Olympics and you would not choose a coach who constantly said to you, you're not going to make it. You're not going to get to the end. In fact, you're going to have a heart attack halfway through and die. And then everyone's going to die. And it's going to be death all around. And then you'll break your leg. And like, it, it, you wouldn't choose a coach who's going to do that. You would want somebody who goes, I know you can get gold and I'm going to help you get there. And yeah. that's, and yet this is what women find, you know, they will have healthcare providers who just constantly berate them and say, 
I don't think you can do this. You know, your blood pressure is going to get too high or, you know, your, your pelvis is too small or like there'll be, a, your baby will be too big. There'll be all these obstacles put up a whole way. And before you know it, you've got a hurdle race and not a sprint. You were never, you never went in there for that. You wanted someone to encourage you. So that confidence part was not just about the women's own confidence, but how confident they felt their healthcare provider was in them. And there was big differences with that. Then um, relationship kind of built on that and relationship was about the relation, how, how supportive you felt in the relationship with your healthcare provider. And obviously women who had continuity of care would, would kind of be much higher with that because they got to know them. Mm. But then there was a difference between healthcare provider and that's what I really looked at in my final part of my PhD. And then active labour because as you know, um, when you're planning a VBAC, it is really just about the labour and birth, isn't it? I mean, you, you kind of know the, the after stuff. You, you kind of hope that you're going to get a better recovery. Like some of the reasons for planning a VBAC might be because you want better recovery. Mm-hmm. You've, got a, you've got a toddler at home. You don't, you know, you can't pick him up if you've had a cesarean. So the better recovery is there, but then you can't get that unless you have the VBAC. So all the, all the focus is on that labour. Mm. And plus women who've had, um, who've, who've had a previous cesarean, often they've had a previous emergency cesarean in, in labour. And so they already know what happened. They already know what works and what doesn't work. So then the focus really comes on this active labour. And I found that women learn a lot about natural labour. They, they often kick themselves and wish they had learned this stuff last time. Mm-hmm. Um, and they did whatever they could to be as active and upright as they could be because they knew that was what's going to increase their chances. And then even when women had a, um, I shouldn't say even, so for women who had a repeat cesarean, when they had planned to be back in this particular cohort of women, if, if they had ticked all the boxes during labour, they'd done everything they could during labour, they felt better about the outcome afterwards if it was a repeat cesarean because they could sit back and reflect and go, well, I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this. I did more than I did last time and I had a repeat cesarean because of X, Y, and Z. I now feel that's okay because at least I tried um, and at least I, you know, I really invested in that. Um, and then especially if they felt that they had higher control and then they had higher confidence and then they had a good relationship, then that really impacted how women felt after the birthing experience, regardless of whether that was a repeat cesarean or a VBAC. The VBAC did bring the extra oomph to it though. Like the, the VBAC did bring extra healing and I guess more, more feelings of power um, in, in, the, in the women though. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I'll let you talk about that and then I can go on to the survey after. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's, all, it's all fascinating. And, and really when... As a, as a midwife and practicing, that's certainly what what you see in women is that um, particularly the women, like you you were talking about the two types there, the ones that that do go on to have a successful vaginal birth, there there it does have an enormous healing component mm. to them because they often there is unfortunately, and I say that really hugely unfortunately, this sense for some women that a cesarean is a failure in their birth or there was often a lot of trauma around that previous cesarean, particularly um, if it was an emergency cesarean and to be able to then go on to have a vaginal birth afterwards kind of reinstills in them their confidence within their body and their body's ability to actually be able to do it. But again, I also love how what you found was that even for those that did end up having to have a cesarean, just being able to still go through that process and still having that choice and that control I think is really, really important for women because I, I always say that's the magic word in, in labor and birth and anything in life really is choice, isn't it? And being feeling that you're in control of that choice. Um, when One of the things that, that I do find is um, too is that women will often shy away from vaginal birth after cesarean because they did have an emergency cesarean previously. But that's an interesting thing to have a look at too as well, isn't it? Because the only way we categorize cesareans is elective or emergency. Um, But there's a whole category in between, which is really kind of non-emergency or unplanned where perhaps, you know, they've had a posterior baby that's just not rotated or they've had an induction of labor for something else and that induction hasn't worked because that woman's body hasn't been ready to accept that. But because they've ended up laboring and then having a cesarean it's classed as an elective as an emergency cesarean 
Do you think that that influences just because of that naming and that labeling around cesareans? Do you think that tends to influence women's choices next time for vaginal birth? What do you think? I think a little bit because then the word emergency is then focused on. And like I had to have a cesarean and it was an emergency. And yeah. yet, you know, we know as midwives that there were very, very few category one, press the buzzer, we're going heading straight down. And you and I would have been in them, but yeah. they are very rare. Most of the time, it's another hour or so before you're actually on the table. Mm. Um, and that's probably a good timing. Um, so, yeah, I think that category is there. I think, I think it really needs to be repeat cesarean either before or during labor and that's a lot of the language that I tend to use in in my papers and in in my thesis is you know it's it's a repeat emergency it's either before or during labor yeah and, and then it just tells you you know what that's that's just what you have that is the type we don't we don't say an emergency vaginal birth or an emer or, you know an elective normal birth like it's we, we take that word out of it but one of the things you said was about that but that sense of failure and often that is also because we as healthcare professionals we load the language so that that's what women hear. They're told this is a failed induction. And yeah. when a woman hears that, they don't think, you know what, it's because I probably didn't need to be induced in the first place. And then I had all these drugs and then I had, they had a time frame that they wanted me to finish in. So really it's a systemic failure. Mm. It's not my personal failure. They don't do that at all. No. Now, we can sit there and say that, but they don't. And that's usually the reason for it. They'll just take that on board and go, well, that's another thing that I failed. And, you know, in, the, in this society and in the, in the system of the hospital, which is a patriarchal hierarchical system, it's very easy just to go, well, I, that was my fault. I failed. Yeah. I failed that, indu in, that induction. Or you were told that your cervix, you, 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 your cervix failed to dilate well, that cervix is part of me, so therefore I have failed again. Right. And therefore I can't have a vaginal birth because I have failed that once and therefore I can't do this. And I also don't want to have that repeat failure. So let's just go for what I know. And then, see, the thing is that that's part of it. But the other part is the way that we sell it. Yes. So I have sat there in... in in rooms, in, in, in appointments, when people have, you know, when you listen to a doctor sell an elective cesarean compared to a VBank, just listen to the words that are used. Well, see, the thing is you can, for an elective cesarean, you can book the date. Okay, woman ticks, I'm in control. And you can, you know, you can choose who's going to be in there with you. Again, women ticks, that's me in control. And, and you know, we'll have, you won't feel any pain. So women can remember what it was like last time. But then they don't tell you about the pain that you're going to feel afterwards. And you think most women would remember that too. Yes. When, you're, when you've got this fear around the labour, the repeat labour from as it was before, then you look at what else there can be. Mm -hmm. And I find that in, in the research that's out there, on both women's experiences of, is of planning a VBAC and women's experiences of planning um, an, a repeat cesarean before labour, the reasons are the same. The reasons are the same. And the biggest reason is fear of birth or fear of labor from yes. what happened last time from having a previous cesarean. Yet women can kind of go one or both ways. They'll go right this time, I'm going to do a VBAC and I'm going to, and, and often I think women, when they're doing that, they're realizing that the system was at fault. So they're going to fix that on that way. Mm. And, um, and I do wonder, and some of the research shows this, and not much, if women then choosing the elections there and go, well, that's, that was me at fault and not the system. And therefore, I need to go this way and fit myself into the nice bracket of a repeat cesarean. Um, so we don't, we don't have much on that um, per se. Like there's some, some qualitative studies that kind of indicate that, but, but not very much. And I just think it's interesting that, you know, you've got these two streams. Um, but one thing we do here is that although we've got some studies that show that healthcare providers are positive about VBAC, and we know we've got that out there, Marilyn Farrell did a nice one a couple of years ago about that. It's almost as if they don't, they can talk the talk, but they don't walk the talk mm -hmm. because then women's actual experiences of that is very different. So if we compare ourselves with a country that has high VBAC rates, then I think it's really important to find out what's going on in other countries. So we have a very low VBAC rate. Our rate is 11%. Oh, we can add an extra couple of percent if we include instrumental births with that. Mm -hmm. um, 
Now, that's really low. If we look at the highest country in the world that does it, we've got Finland. Finland has a 55% VBAC rate. So just over half of women with a previous cesarean will go on and have um, a, a VBAC, not a repeat cesarean. So it's kind of splits half and half. How can we go from like 11% and they have 55%, like what really can be the difference? Mm. Some studies have looked at that. And what they find is it's the attitude of the healthcare providers that make a big difference. In Finland, they have VBAC as the first choice. Like VBAC is the default choice. <laughs> if you have a previous cesarean, you will have a VBAC. And if the woman comes up with issues such as fear of birth, um, I'm worried about what happened last time, I've had a previous trauma, then she is focused on and put into a fear of birth clinic where mm. she is looked after by contingent care with a midwife, a psychology team, um, and an obstetrician. And they collaboratively care for her so that she can look at the trauma that happened last time, still with the mind of having VBAC, but at the end of it, the woman can then make the choice on what she goes for. But it gets treated. Birth trauma gets treated. It doesn't just go, well, then maybe you should avoid labor and have an elective cesarean instead. Mm. we don't have that and i think a lot of language from healthcare professionals is favorable towards a scheduled cesarean than it is towards a VBAC. and then when it's talked about VBAC, women are often told you can plan a VBAC, but some women will have a repeat cesarean and then you're going to have to go to labor to to theaters in labor again and so then it's even looked at the double-edged sword of a VBAC. yeah and it, and it is tricky isn't it because it, it really is you know, I, you know, let's try for a VBAC. It's that, that word, our language, and that's something that I'm incredibly passionate about also is our language around birth and that, and that word try. Well, you know what? Let's give it a go. Let's, let's try it and see how you go as opposed to, no, absolutely, I can't see any reason that you are going, uh, cannot go on to have a vaginal birth, particularly with women such as that had an elective cesarean for breech birth. You know, that that woman's body hasn't even labored yet. So, you know, it was purely a cesarean because that baby was in the wrong position. Um, so there's no reason why she cannot have a successful vaginal birth after cesarean next time around. But there's very few reasons why women can't. Right. Um, and in a way that kind of gets me a bit, a bit frustrated because yes, we've got some studies out there that show the factors that increase feedback rates. And then we also know we've got things out there that potentially decrease VBAC rates. And they will look at maternal demographics and they will look at um, previous um, obstetric history. Like all, they'll take all that stuff into account. But again, it's like doing it with blinkers. You know, it's not looking at the whole system and they don't often map that against the model of care that they had um, or even, you know, it's like the, the, the VBAC calculator, which I am not a fan of. Mm -hmm. I do not agree with the VBAC calculator. I just cannot do it because it puts this percentage onto a woman based on, I mean, it, 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 was, it was a good study that did it. Grobman did it in, back in 2007, I think it was. You know, it was interesting. But he put in that the, um, the race of the woman. And so we know that the, um, the black African women, African-American women, have lower VBAC rates, they have higher cesarean rates. But that isn't to do with their ethnicity. It's to do with the system mm. that is systemically racially against women who are black. You know, and they don't put that into it. They don't go, oh, well, actually, in this, in this, um, in this hospital, we've got a great, um, you know, we, we've dealt with, we, we, we've really looked at the um, systemic racism in this hospital, so therefore you're, we can take that bit out. They don't look at that. They just throw that into the VBAC calculator. And, you know, and then you've got a lower score, but they don't look at the reasons behind that. It's just far too black and white. Um, they then don't say, well, actually, if you have contentive care with a midwife, you're going to go straight up to 80% chance of you having a VBAC. Mm. They don't look at that. They put the, they put the blame completely again on the woman. Yeah. And that's what gets me really frustrated because it's just the woman taking that on board and going, well, maybe I shouldn't go for this because my, my percentage, my score isn't, isn't great. Um, when you know there was a piece that came out recently um that with all the that was written i can't remember what journal it was written in there but i did find it and um, that really critically um pulled apart a lot of these calculators and they included that one in there based on race based on the stuff they write about race so yeah there's there but there are some factors that that potentially they can increase them 
Now, I think the ones, the biggest ones to, um, to focus on, just prove a theory for me. Um, that when you're having a baby and when you're in labor, the biggest organ that we deal with is not the uterus, it's the brain. <laughs> it's all about the brain. Yes, yeah. there can be certain things that happen and that they are out of control, but a lot of it is to do with the brain. Mm -hmm. We can prove that in VBAG, I think, because if we look at women who've had a previous vaginal birth and then had a cesarean and then plan a VBAG, their, their rates of VBAC are much higher than if they've not had a previous vaginal birth before. Mm. Why is that? Well, we could say technical things like, oh, the cervix has dilated before, she's pushed the baby. Or the horrible one is her pelvis has proved that she can have a baby. Oh, my God. That's oh, my God. <laughs> language. This is language we hear yeah. and women hear, which is more important. All it, all it shows you is that the woman knows that she can do it. Yes. She knows that she can push a baby through her vagina because she's done it before. Absolutely. The other way that we can look at that is if they've had a previous VBAC. So if a woman's had a cesarean and then a VBAC and then has another VBAC and then subsequent, that goes right up to 80% plus. Mm. Well, that's not proving us anything other than the woman believes that she can do it. Yes. She's got the evidence because she can do it. And that's one of the hardest things in confidence, in the fact of confidence for women planning their first feedback if they've not had a vaginal birth before. Because yeah. it's the convincing that you can do it when you've got the whole system against you. Yeah. Uh, do you know, I cannot agree with you more. I mean, our whole premise at Calm Birth is headspace in birth. Like that's, that's the whole reason that Pete developed our program because as a midwife, he could see the difference between the women who, who had that, that mentality of I've got this to those women who, who were convinced that they, they weren't probably going to be able to do it. And, and that's one of my big passions around um, educating women who are having VBACs because not only do they, you know, are they motivated to get in and they want to get the, the skills to be active, as you said, but they have to move past that previous birth and understand that this is a new birth with a new experience. And Hazel, you know, as, as best that I do, that there's never one birth the same as the other ever. Like you never, ever see that. And that Really, when women can understand that, that can take a bit of pressure off themselves, knowing that no matter what, they're going to have a different experience this time. And I even remember with my VBAC, with my gorgeous daughter Ames, um, halfway through her labor, her labor started to go in a, a similar direction that my son's birth did. So I, I had posterior babies, you know, my, because of my pelvic shape. And I got to a point where I went, oh, I'm not going to be able to do this because the same thing, similar thing happened. And I remember getting, luckily I got on the phone to my dad, who happens to be Peter Jackson and said, dad, you know, it's, it's happening again. I don't think I can do this. And he said to me, Karen, this is a different birth and a different baby. You've got this. And you know what I did? And that was it. That's all I needed to hear was reinstilling that confidence because you do. In that experience, there are moments that come up where you think you'd, those doubts come up and what you've got to do is be able to think higher than them and bring them down. And that, that requires education, that requires research, it requires motivation. And as you said, um, it requires a support team around you that believes in you just as much as actually believes in you more than what you do yeah. um, with that, I think. And so, so education is, is enormous in that for, on two dimensions, helping with that headspace to move past that last birth, but, but helping with that, that confidence of knowing that they've got it this time yeah. as well. I had that same, same crisis during my, my labor and um, I, I, I had a bit of a, a crazy labor story, but, once I was actually in the hospital and the, the support I was going to have couldn't be with me that day. I had my husband, but I didn't have, I was going to have a doula and a friend who was a midwife as well, and they couldn't be there with me. So I, I was desperate to have another woman there. Um, and I wasn't getting that from the midwifery team. I, I, I was, you know, an un unbooked um, planned home birth who just turned mm -hmm. up in labor. And so, you know, I, even though they knew me, I just wasn't the most popular person there. In fact, the, the person that I really wanted to look after me in a, in a power play, the team leader said no, because she could see that I wanted her and they gave me someone else. Actually, they gave me her. The team leader just looked after me, which she didn't. I mean, the one good thing is they kept out of the room, but then I just didn't have that support I needed. Thankfully, um, 
a, another midwife and colleague who I worked with in a, in a different hospital where I was still working, she came down and we got her on the phone and she came down to support me. She got let off work early so she could come and support me. And I just needed her. Like I was going through, I know what it was. I was going through transition and you know, I just said to her, what if I can't do this? What if I can't push her out? And you know, she just said, you're one of the strongest women I know. And if you can do this, you know, if I can do this and she did, she had a, she'd had a, a baby. If I can do this, then you can. And I'm like, Oh yeah, that's just what I needed straight away. I felt the urge to push. And um, so, you know, I, you, you are going to reach that moment. And the, the important thing with, with VBAC is you've got to deal with your previous baggage and that is your previous birth and your previous labor experiences. Now, you can work for it during a pregnancy and that's really helpful if you've got continuity care with a midwife that you've got the time um, to get to know and to spend time to look at it. You know, if, if, if they can get access to your notes then at least they can go through it with you and that's really important. Um, because if you don't deal with it during pregnancy, you will deal with it during labour. Yes. In fact, you will deal with it with extra double scoops of it because you've not gone through it. Because even during labour, there's going to be a bit of it. But yes. you're just ladling it on if you don't deal with it during like, during pregnancy, and and I you know I see this a lot, and I certainly saw it a lot in my in my studies, um, that you know that that was one of the benefits of having that continuity of care um, with a midwife because they had they spent longer with you um, mm. to be able to go through that. And I actually did a focus group of privately practicing midwives when I was doing my masters when I was looking at HBAC. And I, I did a focus group with them. It was, it was a lot of fun. And I asked them, you know, what do you do differently um, for women planning a VBAC compared to, you know, women who haven't, haven't had a previous cesarean? And they identified it was the constant debriefing that needed to be yes. done and the constant reassuring and support and the belief that she can do it. And so I actually heard that not only from the women, but I heard that from midwives as well, especially midwives, in private practice, in private practice, because they have, they kind of give that gold standard continuity of care because they're not, they don't have so many, I guess, um, barriers around them. Yeah, well, there's plenty of barriers there, but not to do with policies and guidelines anyway. Yeah, um, that's right. And you know, um, actually, it was one of my kids' teachers um, said this once in a parent-teacher interview, and he said, you know, the word fail actually means first attempt in learning. It's not a negative word. And I think that's a great way for women to look at their first birth, not as, as a negative, not as a failure, but as their first attempt in learning. So having a VBAC gives them the opportunity to go back and look at, and this is what I will often say to the women who, who come to me as a midwife or, or with education is have a look and see what things worked really well for you. What things do you think you'd like to, to do differently? What education and knowledge do you need to get to do that differently how can we work together to to help you prepare for that and actually kind of look at it more at coming in on it a bit more objectively so rather than seeing it as oh my god I, it was just you know such a failure it's really that first attempt in learning and this and even for women where things go swimmingly in their first birth or previous birth there's always those little pockets of, of learning to be had on reflection to bring you to your next labor as well. How would you make that even better? Like how yeah. would you, how what, do you, what do you want to do next time? What's most important for you? Yeah, that's right. And having a look at it in that way, I think is a really, really valuable way to do it. Yeah. So that's Hazel, part of your research too is also looking at models of care because that's the other really important thing. And what we've been talking about really, isn't it, about how important that support team is behind you. What, have you, what did you find between the different models of care and I guess their support around um, vaginal birth after cesarean? So the final part of my PhD was the quantitative side. So learning about the four factors in the qualitative and phase two led me into designing a survey, a national survey um, for women who've previously had planned a VBAC in the last five years. And I designed the survey around those four different factors. So I tried to find some validated tools um, such as the, Madden, the Mothers on Decision Making, Mothers on Respect Index, quite a few different things that I've put in that, that reflect the different areas. Um, and then I sent it out to a bunch of women that I, the, well, I actually put an invite out on Facebook and said, who wants to come and test this survey? Because I wanted it to be relevant to women that were 
going to be doing the survey because although I've had a VBAC, I've also worked in academia for a little while. And so my language might be a little bit different. So I managed to get, I think I had like over 30 women get in contact and we had these online Zoom sessions, which even a year ago um, was kind of rare, but we do it every single day now. It's funny. Yeah. Uh, I, I got them all on there because I thought, well, these have all got previous kids. So it's really hard to just say, come to Sydney for a meeting. It's much easier to do it online. So I had women from all over Australia test the survey, which was really useful. And I got some great ideas. We went through every single question on how to make it better, what things to include, um, what language needed to be changed. It was a really interesting process. So then the survey that went out, I felt was a very robust and um, valid, valid survey um, that women were going to be able to understand. That was very important to me because I'm a feminist researcher. So it has to be relevant to, to women. Yeah. And then I got um, a great response. There's actually two arms of the survey and there's one arm I haven't even had a chance to look at yet. And they were the ones that were actually pregnant. I haven't even looked at that. That'll be looking at that postdoc. But I looked at the ones that um, had, were, had planned to be back in the last five years. And I had 490 women from every state and territory, including Tasmania. Oh, wow. Um, from, yeah, from all over Australia. And they did, this, they did this survey. And as I was starting to play with the um, statistics, and I've never done statistics before, so it was a bit of a learning on the go. And as I was playing around with it, I was starting to see a difference between the models of care. So there was a question that asked what type of you know, healthcare provider did they have? And there was a whole list of different things. But the most important question was asked afterwards, and that was, did you have continuity of care? And then I put a little in brackets, a definition of continuity of care. And they could say yes with a midwife, yes with a doctor or none. And, um, you know, I had quite a fair distribution between them all, which was good. And with no, I'm assuming that they were in um, public models of, you know, the normal standard fragmented um, maternity care that we give. And then when I started comparing the results across those, and that's, I guess, where I was, um, I was quite surprised. Now, one of my, one of my thoughts had been that continuative care was important regardless who gives it. And certainly in the four factors in the qualitative side, when I had those 11 women, I had a variety of different models of care. And there wasn't, there was a few little things that identified women who, who had private obstetricians that were a little bit different, but you know, I didn't have numbers. I didn't have statistics. These were experiences. So there was less I could do about that. Once I actually had all these numbers, I could actually see a difference. One of the most simple ones was one of the, was the bar graph that's in the, um, in the paper. And I asked a simple question, how long was each appointment? Mm. And, uh, and you can see on there, on the graph, that the very short times, which was like less than five minutes, five to 10 minutes, 10 to 20 minutes, 20 minutes being the absolute max, they were sky high for continuative care with a doctor and standard fragmented care. Give it a little bit longer and the, and the curve started coming up, the figures started coming up for continuity care with a midwife and that was over 20 minutes, um, 30 minutes to an hour, over an hour. And so it was, it was obvious that continuity of care with a midwife um, gives you more time with the midwife. They invest more time with you. Interestingly, it doesn't cost any more. <laughs> You'd look at that as a manager and go, oh my gosh, these midwives must be, you know, seeing all these women and for longer and not seeing as many as they could and I'm not getting my buck for my money. But, but the studies that have been out there that compare the models of care for cost, continuity care with the midwife still comes out the cheapest, even though they spend longer mm. with women. Probably something to do with some pay inequality there, but um, still it is, most, it is beneficial for women in that, in that side as well. Then... Um, if we then look at, well, what is it about that relationship then that you have? I looked at some of the other things that I, that I studied. So if I look at the two, um, the two tools that I use, which is Mothers on Respect and Mothers on Decision Making, these are two validated tools designed by the Birth Lab in Canada. And they've done quite a few studies using this now. And what it shows is how respected you felt as a woman mm -hmm. with that healthcare provider and how much you felt that you were making the decisions, so that you were in control of the decision-making. Now, with, um, with all those models of care, the higher you score, the better you, you have, like the more control you've got or, or the, less, the, the, the more respected you feel. And midwives came up highest, and then continued care with the doctor, and then standard fragmented care. I was getting a little bit lost in the numbers, and so this is where I turned to my husband, who's a bit of a whiz with numbers, and his name's on the paper as well. 
And I said to him, look, I still think, you know, we've got continued care with a midwife here, continued care with a doctor here, and then standard fragmented care down here. That's how I'm, you know, that's, how what I, that's what I'm seeing or thinking that I'm seeing. But I need a way to show that. And so he used some stuff that they do in climate change modeling. And we looked at the four factors. We chose four questions from each of those factors that would cover those factors. And we put them together. And this is where I was very surprised that it wasn't midwife and then doctor and then standard fragmented care at all. It was midwife, doctor, standard fragmented care, more like here. So if you look at those, those four factor um, in, in the actual paper, you can see these four graphs together. Continued care, the midwife is always really high. And then the kind of the doctor and standard, and, and, um, standard care kind of go like this. In active labor, and I ask things like, did you have an upright birth? Did you have a water birth? Um, I have to suddenly remember what else I had in that, in that factor now. But I had a bunch of different things in there about active labor and birth. And standard fragmented care actually scored higher than the than continued care with the doctor. Right. But the midwife was, was much, much higher. Um, so, like, it was, it, I think what it showed to me was, like, once we put all those figures together, we then had one graph that kind of showed the metrics of all the four factors amalgamated into one. And again, you know, it just shows continued care with the midwife scored high on those factors, and then the doctor, and then, um, you know, and then standard fragmented care. And I think for me, it really pulled apart what is going on in continued care. Why, you know, what are the differences that's going on? Now, we can be very basic and say, well, one is because of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, midwives just spend more time with women. But in the discussion of that paper, I dig a little bit deeper and I look at the feminist um, principles behind that um, and behind midwifery compared to obstetrics. And I kind of dig a little bit deeper onto, you know, what else is going on. But basically, if you want to feel more in control, if you want to have more confidence and you want your healthcare provider to have more confidence in your ability to do it. And if you want to have a better relationship that's based on equity and support and trust, and you want to be more active in labor and birth, then you would choose continuity care with a midwife. Mm. And and that activity is really important. And even water birth, I find that that women who are having VBACs, if they can get into water, it just seems to to relax them. I mean, any woman actually who gets into water can relax them. But that, the, I guess the biggest obstacle there is, is um, surveillance around VBACs. You know? Yeah, there is. But look, yeah. there, are, there is uh, a lot of units now have telemetry. Mm. So telemetry is, um, for those who are listening, it's, you've got the CTG, but there's no wires. Um, and so they're connected wirelessly to the CTG machine. And those, um, they, they sit one on the top and one, you know, one, um, one at the top of your fundus or the top of your uterus and one listening to your baby's heartbeat. And then they're strapped on as, as they normally would be. Um, and if you're planning a VBAC, you, would, you probably would have had these at one point. Um, and, but there's just no wires. And they're waterproof. Mm-hmm. So you can put them in, in the bath. I actually find that they pick up really well in water. The, the one point that they're not so good at picking up is in the shower. But if you turn your back to the shower and so you have the water going over your back and the water's not going over the belly, then they're a bit better. Um, yeah. But certainly and your telemetry used in, in, in the bath is, is really, really good. And then, you know, it's still being shown on the screens. And so, you know, if, if continuous, continuous monitoring is going to happen, and to be fair, continuous monitoring is in all of the policies for VBAC, it so is. it's more than likely that you're going to be doing that. Mm-hmm. Then um, look at what else you've got, like actually speak to your healthcare providers and say, do you have telemetry in, your, in the unit? And that's what I want to use. But quite often there's obstacles to telemetry. So, mm-hmm. you know, you might get midwives who say, who, well, I think you get midwives who are not comfortable using it. Mm-hmm. And then they will find the barriers oh, it's out of charge. <laughs> oh, this one's not working. Oh, we've lost one. It went to the laundry. Um, you know, I'm a midwife. I've heard them all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So we know that midwives can be barriers as well as facilitators. So there can be barriers to it. They might only have, they'll tell you there's only one or two and someone else is using them. Um, so that, but, you know, really, if you, if you really ask for it and push it, then they, if they've got it, they might be able to get it for you and so that should be no excuse for it i actually think birthing in water and i've been a private practicing midwife for many years so water birth is something i'm very comfortable and used to um, and I, as a midwife it's beautiful because it's the most relaxed way <laughs> your hands off and you're just watching and supporting it's beautiful and i think for women planning a v-back because there's all these issues of control because there's you know we know that loss of control is one of the biggest um 
the, the biggest reasons that cause birth trauma is this loss of control mm. and being in the, in a birthing pool where you've got the circle of security around you and that nobody can get in to touch you and you can actually move around. Plus you can be active, plus you can get into different positions, but you also don't have a whole audience staring at your vagina and you, you actually have that control is extremely powerful for women. But unfortunately, they, they, they are often the same reasons why healthcare providers don't like them because they cannot all stare at your vagina. Yeah, that's true. And I guess the thing for people to, women to realize is they can ask and, and, and request all of this. I, I think there's a lot of women out there that don't realize that they actually have, have the power to say, you know, I, I do would like to get in bath. So work out how you're going to monitor me in the bath because I will be in the bath and, you know, and, you know, I don't know that I really want to have that um, kangaroo in my hand unless you think that there's a really good reason to have it in there or, you know, explain to me, ask me why, you know, why, why are you giving this to me? Um, I think that's important. They just tend to go, oh, I need to, all right, I'll put my hand down and give it to you. It's kind of, it's really about power and understanding that women are the driving force behind their birth and their caregivers are there to support them um, in the best way possible. And so it's, it's a partnership. It's not a, a hierarchy. It is, but look, it's, it's a very difficult one though, it's isn't it? It's a really um, difficult one. It's you know, like it, it's easy for us to say that, like, you know, and I often hear it, lots of people say to women, you can just say no, or you can just ask for this and you can just ask for that. That's all well and good. But when you've got someone in front of you in a powerful position, such as a midwife or a doctor, more often with a doctor, and they're in a powerful position and they are, they are saying that your baby's life is at risk or you're at risk for not doing this, then it's very difficult to object and to say for something, say that you want something else. One of the things I asked in the survey, which I haven't published yet, it's going to be my next paper that I work on later in the year, is I actually asked lots of, lots of open-ended questions. And one of the questions I asked was, did you ever receive hurtful comments when planning for your VBAC? Mm. And over 50% said yes. That one I can tell you. Wow. Now, I then asked them in the next question, would you mind sharing them? can you tell us what they were? I can't remember my correct wording now, but, you know, basically ask them what, they, what it was. And I've been looking at those recently and they're disgusting. Like they, they as a midwife, they, they make me angry that somebody in my profession could say that. Mm-hmm. They make me angry that, that somebody in, my, in the profession of being an obstetrician or a doctor in an obstetric team could also say that. It makes me embarrassed to be a healthcare provider and ashamed that these, that these things can be said. And there's a whole bunch of them about death and dying. Just like I was saying with that coach, like if the coach was telling you, you're gonna have a heart attack on your way there, you're not gonna feel that confident about going, you know, going for gold. Well, a lot of them are about death and dying. And some of them um, are about death and dying and, um, and the sexist at the same time by saying to the partner, you're gonna end up with a dead wife and a dead baby and a child to raise on your own. With the whole aim, sub, you know, subconsciously, the whole aim is for, that, is for the husband to tell the wife that she shouldn't be doing this, that she should be doing something else. So there's, there's a lot to it, there's so many layers to it. There's a lot of body shaming that's been said. Mm-hmm. You know, your, your, your pelvis is too small or your, your cervix doesn't dilate, does, doesn't dilate like that. Well, what else, how else does it dilate? <laughs> seriously it, that's just crazy and um there are loads of different body shaming comments as well and so although we can say that women can be in control women can say no women can ask for these we've got to realize that sometimes the the response that they get from that are disgusting and disgraceful and demeaning and then it's very difficult to then go i still want that mm. You know, when someone is saying to you, if you do this, your baby will die, it's very hard to go, okay, I choose that option. <laughs> because I'm yet to find a woman who gets pregnant purely with the aim of killing that baby. Yes. And I have cared for women who have lost their babies. Mm. And that is not what they go into pregnancy for. And so how dare any healthcare professional lay that blame on a woman? 
but they do. And just for planning a VBAC, when there's a less than 0.8% chance at the highest, usually about 0.2% chance of having uterine rupture. And then if you're that 0.2, then there's still a one in a thousand chance of your baby having, having a bad outcome. And, and we rarely see that these days. Yeah. Yeah. I know it's crazy, but that, but because that, and I guess that's the greatest fear of women, isn't it? That you hear when, when women are looking at their next birth after cesarean is the first thing that they will say to you is, but I don't want my uterus to rupture. I've been told that my uterus can rupture, but, and, and of course, if someone was to say to you, look, one of the downsides of VBAC is that your uterus can rupture. Of course, women are going to go, oh, whoa no way that's going to put my baby at risk. It's going to put me at risk and the recovery and I might use, lose my uterus. But when you then put it into perspective by giving them the stats, which is not what we do, it kind of, it, it puts them right. It gives, it takes it from a perceived risk to gives them the real risk, which really is very, very small um, for, for particularly one cesarean um, yeah, absolutely. And it's the same for, for two cesareans too. I mean, VBAC after two cesareans, um, you know, is now, in, oh, it's now supported by the Australian College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists in their 2017 guidelines. Unfortunately, RANSCOG didn't include those guidelines in their updated ones in 2019, but mm -hmm. uh, maybe in their next draft they would. Um, so yeah, the studies are, are very favourable um, for, you know, one cesarean and two cesareans. And even then for multiple cesareans after that, they don't go up by massive amounts. Um, really the, the highest rupture rate that we can see is once we start throwing chemicals at the, at the uterus. And mm -hmm. the highest complete, the highest would be um, having prostaglandin and syntocinone. Yeah, glandin is, is often not used because of those high feedback um, rupture rates. But then if we add syntocinol on top, and that makes sense. We're yeah. making the uterus do something that it's kind of maybe not ready for. And we're going to do it under, under very difficult situation of having all these chemicals on board. So you can understand that that would, that, that would be more risky. But that still doesn't mean that if you have prostaglandin and syntocinol, you will have a uterine rupture. You still got, the majority of women still won't. Yes, it does increase your risk. But really, if we're looking at um, like no use of, of, of synthetic oxytocin, so Sinto, and more than 15 months since you had your cesarean, um, then, you know, the chance of you having in, in one of our Australian studies was 0.2%. Mm. Mm. So it's it's, it, it's got to be acknowledged. And that's why you have things like continuous monitoring so that if a, if a rupture was to occur, then in about 70% of cases, and this is looking at a study that was done that looking at the cases that went out there, which is kind of hard for them because they had to really dig them up. Um, then um, then they, they, even with that, they found that about 70% of the cases, there was, there was some fetal abnormalities that came up. And that, you know, that would be like a, you know, a tachycardia or um, deceleration. So very high heartbeat, all those dips that often you get told about with the CTGs when the heart rate drops. Um, and so that's why they want you to wear one of those. But you're still wearing it for something that's a 0.2% chance. And the majority of times when there would be an abnormal fetal heart rate and you, got, you get sent to theatres, it won't be because of a uterine rupture. Um, and then there's also quite dubious research out there about the use of CTGs anyway and how much they actually pick up. How, what they tend to do is pick up a lot of false positives, which end up in a high cesarean rate. Um, so there's, look, it's a lot of grey in, in that. Um, but they don't tell you any of that. It, it, unfortunately, it just gets this focus on uterine rupture, uterine rupture, uterine rupture, as if it's, as if it's like a given that that's what you're going to have, as if you've got a 50% 50 50 chance of having it. You don't. No. You don't. No, it's a tiny, tiny chance, tiny risk. Of course there are women because it's not a 0%, no. right? There are still some women that do and women have the right who've experienced that to share those stories. And we do see that occasionally. Um, and, you know, there's got to be a space that for people, for, for women to be able to share those stories. But you've still got to then sit back and go, okay, well, there was that one mm. <laughs> in all of those. There is going to be that one. Mm. Um and then that's difficult to then go, well, then I've got to make sure that I, how do I know that I'm not going to be that one? Well, you don't because none of us have crystal balls. One of the problems that can often happen with healthcare providers is if they have seen that one, then that clouds their, their experience because they've seen that, 
that one, regardless of the outcome of it. No. They've seen that one. They're like, oh, I've seen you turn up to, therefore I can't, I can't support VBAC. When you're trying to explain, yes, but, you know, there are still going to be them. They're just very, very small <laughs> risks. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's right. I mean, it's, and it is, it come, it really comes to down to, to the perspective and, and to the experience. And, and I guess where we are heightened, heightened for survival. So we do tend to hear the negative more than we hear the positive as well. So it's about flipping off that and realizing, you know, for, for every, every hundred women that, you know, or, or more, there's going to be maybe one or two not so great experiences around that. But we um, can't also then, I guess the, the problem we focus on that, I mean, healthcare providers focus on, on this negative risk of, of mm. rupture is that we don't, we, we take away then the reasons why women want to plan VBAC in the first place. Yes. And that's another question that I asked in the survey, which was, you know, why did, why, why was planning a VBAC important to you? And again, that's not been published yet because I'm working on, on that data. Um, but I have done a bit of a content analysis, so I've basically kind of put them in the different, you know, in the different buckets for each of the reasons. And, and the most common one is because women said they wanted to experience vaginal birth. Yes. And that, that kind of, I guess, this, this innate feeling that you want to do is really strong, that you, that you want to have that vaginal birth experience. Mm. And I think when we just, when healthcare providers just kind of go, well, just have a repeat cesarean and 84% of women in Australia with a previous um, scar do have a repeat cesarean, whether that was planned or not, we don't know. But we then, you know, we don't really then focus on what were your reasons for. Like there's very few times I've heard people say, um, remember why you want to have this feedback, you know, as, you know, as your coach saying to you, remember why you want to get gold, remember why you want to win that Olympics. You don't often get many healthcare providers saying, remember why you wanted to have your feedback. Remember how important that is. I often say to my student midwives, remember your why, remember why you wanted to become a midwife in the first place, because when you're having a very challenging shift or you're having a midwife that doesn't want to work with you or you know, <laughs> any of these things that can be quite negative and, or you've, you're, you're, over, you're overwhelmed with all the assignments and exams that you've got. Remember your why. Remember why you wanted to have, why you wanted to become a midwife. And the same for women planning a VBAC. Remember your why. Remember why you want to have a VBAC in, in the first place. Yeah. Because the, those reasons were, were very valid. And like I said, the biggest reason was because they wanted to experience that vaginal birth or wanted to have the natural birthing experience. Yeah. So Hazel, what would your advice be to women who are, who have had a cesarean for a previous birth and are now um, pregnant or looking at getting pregnant and are moving towards considering a vaginal birth after cesarean? What, what would your advice be to them in giving them, I guess, themselves the best chance to achieve that outcome? Yeah. I think, you know, start from the very beginning. First of all, think about if you, if you could plan an ideal birth, what would it look like? And if that means drawing on a bit of paper, just think about what is the most, what, what is it that you really want? You know, really kind of dig down deep without all the fears, just dig down deep. And if that is to have a vaginal birth, then you need to look at, well, how can I best, how can I prepare myself in the best way that I can, that I can go for that? The next thing I would be doing is very quickly um, is finding a midwife you can get continuity of care with. Now, there, there's many now in public hospitals. Um, many, many public hospitals have midwifery group practices and they're called midwif midwifery group practice. Ring up the ancestral clinic and ask, do you have a midwifery group practice? If so, I want to get on it. And then, you know, get on that early and you often have to get onto that early. If you can't access one in the hospital, privately practicing midwives now all over Australia, they still, they're still around, we're still there, and they do support women planning a VBAC. And many have visiting rights in hospitals. So if you're, not, if you're thinking, I don't want to have a VBAC at home, I want to have a VBAC in hospital, then many of these privately practicing midwives actually have visiting rights in hospitals so they can go with you to the hospital. So that's another option. If you can't find a midwife, you can't get continuity care with a midwife through whatever is going on there, Ask the hospital if they have student midwives because student midwives around this country have to follow 10 
women throughout their entire pregnancy. And students love this bit. As, as academics and tutors, we, we fight for this bit to stay in the course because our students love it so much. And if you can say, um, you know, if you can say to the clinic or in your first appointment, can I have a student? They might just have a student there ready to take you on. And yes, they're a student midwife, but that's still the same face that you're going to see every appointment. They're on call for your labour and birth, so they'll turn up for that if they can, and they'll see you afterwards. So it's, it's another step for it. Another person you can look as part of your support team is a doula. Mm. You know, find a doula out there. Doulas have, have some training and they're passionate. You don't do a doula because, you know, it's just the next job that you look at doing. You're doing it because you're passionate. Same for midwifery. So um, find a doula and, and have that doula on board who can, who, and, and speak to that doula. Ask them what they're going to offer you. And knowing that you're planning a feedback, you actually want someone to touch base with you during pregnancy. You want to build a relationship with that person. So if they're going to say, I'll meet you once and then I'll be in labor and birth, that's not building a relationship. That's just having an extra person in the room. You want to build a relationship with that person. And so that they know what you want um, and what your hopes and your, and your um, wishes are for this labor and birth, but also what your fears are so they can help you with that as well. So once you've got that continuity of care um, with a midwife, hopefully, um, with, with a student midwife, maybe, with a doula. Um, then look at how can you build your confidence in your ability to have a feedback. For some women, it was actually getting a little bit healthy um, and knowing that things like gestational diabetes um, and high weight gain might be an issue for labour and birth. Um, and it certainly can make it harder um, at the end, um, not particularly physiologically but from the attitudes of the healthcare providers around from a you system point of view yeah. exactly exactly so you're just trying to like tickle the boxes so it might be that but also i know in my home birth study women said that they were planning for a marathon that they were aware that this was going to be physically hard work so they were planning for that and by doing regular walks or swimming or yoga or other things that can get them going um but also look at what else can you learn now if that's accessing calm birth or another type of um antenatal program that's out there that helps you learn about how to cope um, and what kind of mindset to have during during labor and birth and that's really important and I think that's a great thing um, to go and do you can read books you can um, look online and there are lots of different things that you can learn about how to how how can you cope with labor and birth how can you prevent from getting on that cascade of intervention that you would have most likely had last time mm-hmm. and then um if you've got your support team from the, from, from the birthing side and pregnancy, labor, you know, labor and birth with the midwife, doula, student midwife, you're finding out what you need to do to, to be active in, in labor and, and to have a good mindset around labor and birth. Um, then look at who, who's going to be the team in the, the crowd, in the team, in the, in the audience going, you can do this. You need that, you need that crowd. And that is your peer group. Now, you might have a local group that you can go to. There might be a local um, um, pregnancy group that you go to that your midwife sets up or um, is there from, a, from whatever is in the community. But even if you haven't got that, or if you have, access the online community. There are so many groups out there for um, feedback groups. There's a big Australian one, and then there's local ones as well to your state and territory um, and they're really useful because there you've got a bunch of women, usually women, once they've had their VBAC, they stay in those groups to be, to be your support team. And mm. they get really excited. You can send a question any time of the day and night and you know somebody will answer you because no, there's probably somebody up breastfeeding at that moment seeing that and going, oh, yeah, I can answer that. But they are there to support you and you need that support team around you. And then I think, you know, be aware of what happened last time and spend time going through that with someone who would understand that. And I think, you know, a midwife is, is best placed for that. Um, and if complications occur, then you'll need to see the obstetric team. But maybe take somebody with you. Take your doula, take your partner, take your midwife. Somebody with you that can just be that objective um, extra set of ears and when you only hear the bad stuff, someone that can go out and actually tell you some of the good stuff and maybe someone who needs even to advocate for you in that appointment. Yeah, beautiful. That that's that's fantastic advice, Hazel. And I think it's it's really important. But it's like with any birth, you know, that in order to have a successful inverted commas birth, and that's not necessarily oh, sorry. Pat, 
it's not necessarily how you actually give birth, but really coming out feeling that you were in control of that comes down to to that planning and that preparation for it as well. And I think I think that's probably the most important thing. And and again, um, it's what Pete says. He says preparation is the precursor to any experience. And I think that's something um, that's incredibly important at this time. Yeah. So thank you so much for joining me today. It's such a fascinating topic and something, again, that's very close to my heart. So I do appreciate you having a chat with us. I'm sure we could go on and on and on, but we might need to leave it there for for today. Um, And um, yeah, so thank you once again. Thank you for having me today. It was a lot of fun. I'm always happy to talk about feedback. (laughs) Yeah, great. Thanks, Hazel. No worries.